On July 19, 2015, for the first time in recorded history, the signal at 99.4 MHz went silent 1 minute and 46 seconds into a literal French translation of Supertramp's Goodbye Stranger. It was replaced only by ominous static. Around the world, scientists turned to each other, pale with dread, and wondered what this could portend. Casual radio listeners around the world turned their dials and briefly mourned yet another station killed by satellite radio and goddamn internet music streaming. Which is to say, only a few very serious and very frightened people were listening to the signal at 99.4 MHz, commonly known as KJZZ or KJZ, when it abruptly began broadcasting again days later. Those people, and you, that is. And you should be very frightened, too. This is what they heard. I didn't come here to watch a movie, but I'm at a movie theater. The parking lot was a wasteland of the kind of lumpy, clumsily sculpted suburban cars I used to drive. That was another life, back before Dusty sold our car and insisted we only commute by yoga crawling. The lights in the lot never switch on as I walk towards the windowless concrete box of the movie theater. It's far back from the main road, behind another strip mall and another parking lot tucked almost apologetically in the night. Inside is a violence of colors. The carpet is black, patched with assaults of neon. The ceiling is enormous, designed to draw attention away from the sagging drop ceiling tiles by placing them 30 feet up. But I see them. Around me are couples, teenagers in huge groups and reeking of military strength cologne, and a few lone men with high-waisted pants and thinning hair, each one looking more and more like an amateur film blogger than the last. Some shifty figures trying desperately not to appear as agents of the Sons of Ra and failing horribly. Maybe if they took off their giant animal head masks, they'd have an easier time blending in. And there are families. Families that seem familiar to me, but at the same time, incomprehensible. That's fine. There's very little I understand anymore. A massive board suspended above the ticket counter recalls a train schedule, each listing a brief replacement for a mundane reality. There are plenty of realities to choose from. Hobart's decision three, the final decision, at 11.13. BFRA Sweaty Teen Entertainment number 8769 at 11.21. Jockstrap, the movie about the band Jockstrap at 11.27. All three Cheese Curd Cousin movies start at exactly midnight. It's tempting but I can't imagine a life that doesn't have the eyes of my dead sons looking back at me from across the dark lake water. Along the walls are arcade cabinets with esoteric names and bewildering artwork. Symbols flash across their screens as they try to entice players. I walk the row, impervious to their flickering sorcery. There are so many distractions here. The movies, the games, some with joysticks, others with guns, others with huge plastic spheres, the function of which eludes. 
The row of games ends in a dark alcove, with a few machines clustered around an air hockey table. No one is playing air hockey, probably because of the small handwritten note on the theater letterhead that just says, I'm sorry, I'm so, so sorry, taped to it. The only light comes from a claw machine, currently in use by an older man built like a barrel with four broomsticks and a watermelon stuck to it. The machine's light bulb doesn't seem to have been changed in decades and casts a weak light, but it's enough to see his scraggly white beard that sits between the leather lapels of his vest and stretches the length of his bare chest over a large beer gut. He grips the joystick delicately, just with the tips of his fingers. The claw machine's light barely summons a glint from his massive garnet pinky ring. He doesn't look up as I approach. With precision, he moves the robotic claw over one of the many pieces of buttered toast in the machine. He presses a button and the claw descends, and completely fails to grasp the crisp, buttered toast. Without even so much as a disappointed sigh, the man inserts another coin from his bulging, strained leather pants and plays again. What are you doing? I ask. I'm playing toast, and I'm waiting. I'm waiting to see him again. He's impassively passionate, disconnected, but completely engaged with me and the machine. Is he here? I look around, but I don't see anyone who looks like a pair to this man. Did he tell you to play this game? No, he didn't tell me to play toast, says the man, with careful wording, his mind concentrating on the game. He never tells me what to do, or where to be. That's just how it works. I'll find him again soon, when he's ready to be found. We have an arrangement. Is it worth it? I ask. He finally turns to me, his eyes wide and looking crazed. Oh, yes. He returns to his game, which he continues to lose. But I wonder if perhaps that's the point, and that this man is an incredible success at this game. The claw misses its mark and rises again. As it does, I grip his arm with my hand. He feels like room temperature. The crane isn't moving anymore. Come on, I say. You don't need to wait for what you want. Let's go find him. I'm not sure where these words are coming from or why I start pulling at his arm. He stares straight ahead at the toast game. Why are you just waiting? I keep pulling at the man's arm, but his body doesn't even register my efforts, and his eyes are locked on the game. I yank, I twist and grab, but he might as well be standing here alone, and I should have seen the conclusion to the Hobart's Decision trilogy. I release my grip with the disgusted toss, but that too fails to elicit a response from this man. I haven't seen my husband in weeks, though really he hasn't been himself for years. I'm not shouting at him, but I'm making myself heard. I lost all my sons to the lake. I lost my husband too, but I didn't really know it. And part of myself is probably down there as well, whatever part isn't here now but I'm not going to sit around with Incense or Angela Lansbury's positive moves on VHS anymore. I'm going to get some answers, even if it means finding out there are no answers. I turn away, wanting to put this place and this man behind me, and then he speaks as calmly as before. I listen to the radio. I know your husband. He and I are the same. We went so far away from what we were and found something else. Something to remake us, more complete than we were before, but completely different. He and I are not ourselves. I turn back to face him. I'm not like my husband. But your journey will change you into something else. Something more complete, and not yourself. 
When you see your husband again, tell him I know. We all know. It doesn't really sound like he's talking to me. Maybe all of this is directed at the toast. He presses the button and the claw descends, and this time it grabs the edges of a slice as delicately as he handled the joystick. The man you're waiting to see again. What did he do for you when you last saw him? I ask as the toast descends. The man turns to me as his prize or punishment rises. He gave me toast. The slice of toast slips out, falls, and I notice I can't smell the fresh, buttered bread. This episode of Brian Weekly was written and performed by Max Transitional State Eddie and Kathy Dog Situation Fisher with music by Michael Purr Purr Kitty Purr Arthur. Brian Weekly would like to remind you that change is good, especially format changes. If you're afraid of change, consider completely remaking your life into one where you're not afraid of change. It's that easy. And you can start by leaving us a review on iTunes and following us on Twitter, at Brian Weekly.